Jesus, we proclaim that you are king, master, shepherd. That you're going to return one day. That every eye will behold you, even those who pierced you. We want to bow before you today saying, be our king, be our Lord, be our master. Reign and rule in our hearts. Reign and rule in our homes. Reign and rule in this church. Reign and rule in our community. Reign and rule throughout the world. God, we pray for our team in Guatemala right now. Thank you that we can be a part of reaching the nations even right here as we send, as we give, as we pray. We pray an anointing over their ministry this week. Thank you for Engadi Ministries and all that's happening through Nathan Hardiman and his family. Thank you for calling him there, even right out of Watkinsville, Georgia, that he's serving you faithfully there. Lord, now we bring our offering before you, giving, investing, trusting you to be our provider. We pray for our children. God, for every child in this church, we pray you'd capture their hearts, tenderize their hearts, that they would follow you, never drift from you, and love you and be sent out to be ambassadors for you. So we give this all to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all who agreed said, Amen. You may be seated. All right. As the offering's taken, children ages three years through fifth grade that want to go to children's church, you're dismissed. Thank you for all those who serve in our children's ministry and uh, love hearing reports about what's happening uh, every Sunday and other times as the children meet. All right. Sermon notes are in your bulletin. You can also uh, access them through the church app. Now, at first, you might think it's not fitting to preach on the crucifixion of Jesus at Christmas. However, under the providence of God, we happen to be in John 19 in our study of John, two weeks before Christmas. And I do admit I was tempted to maybe postpone John for a few weeks and just focus on some Christmas stuff. But I've actually chosen not to do that because I think it's very fitting under the providence of God, that we happen to be in John 19, focusing on His death even at Christmas. Why would that be appropriate? Because the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus was born to die. His mission was to go to the cross. This was foretold in the prophecies about Jesus. This was actually predicted when the uh, wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we'll discover the significance of that today. We see in Hebrews chapter 2 that it says He had to be made flesh and blood in order to be our redemption. He had to become flesh and blood in order to become our high priest, our advocate, our sacrifice. So Jesus was born to die. You can't understand Christmas unless you understand Good Friday. The incarnation is all about the crucifixion. So it's actually very fitting today that we just happen to be in John 19, two weeks before Christmas. Despite the fact that most Christmas images are of a sweet little baby in a manger, the glory of God shining around the stable, such as you see on the screen, actually we must remember that He came to die a cruel death, be beaten, crucified, in order to pay the price for our sins to be removed. So at the cradle, at the manger is always the cross. So we pick up in verse 1 of John chapter 19 with Jesus' physical suffering. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. One word 
can be packed with so much meaning when you understand the Roman flogging. Hard for us to even imagine the physical suffering that Jesus endured for us. Flogging involved 30, up to 39 lashes with what was called the catonine device, which was leather strands, and on the end of the leather strands would be pieces of broken pottery, metal, glass, animal bones that would literally rip the flesh off your body. Probably the movie The Passion of the Christ does the best portrayal of what this was actually like. With each blow, they would expect the person to make confessions about their crime. If the criminal did not make confessions, they would keep whipping them. Very likely that Jesus' flogging went all the way to 39 because we know that he had nothing to confess. He was the sinless, righteous, pure Son of God. This was actually prophesied in Isaiah 53, verse 7, when it says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 7 on the screen. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Why did he not open his mouth? Because he had nothing to confess. Then verses 16 to 18 says that they led him to be crucified. The criminal was required to carry the crossbar if able, and then was nailed the hands and the feet nailed to the cross so that the criminal would die a very slow death, ultimately by suffocation. Because the only way to breathe would be to push on your feet and with your arms to get a, a, a bit of air until eventually you couldn't do that anymore and you would die by suffocation. Second area we want to look at is Jesus' relational rejection, verses 16 to 18. I'm sorry, verses 2 to 6. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Here are the very people that Jesus loved and taught and healed and fed and showed enormous compassion for and care for are now rejecting him, ridiculing him, and calling for his execution. After all he did for them, again, this was prophesied in Isaiah 53. I remind you, Isaiah was written 700 B.C. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. It's interesting in verses 4 to 6 to see how conflicted Pilate was. He was confused and intrigued about who Jesus really is, but feeling the pressure of the people and his job and the status within the Roman power structure. 
And don't we often feel that sometimes in our own lives? On the one hand, we want to do the right thing, but peer pressure, pride, and the old what will others think get in the way. And we compromise our sin or don't honor God because of these external forces that bear upon us. The fear of man, the pull of the carnal flesh are at war with what we know to be right. Third thing I see here is Jesus' supreme authority. In verse 10, Pilate tries to be a big shot by saying to Jesus, Don't you know that I have authority to release you or crucify you? And verse 11 is epic. Jesus says, You have no authority except what has been granted to you from above. It reminds us of Romans 13, which says, There is no authority on earth except that which has been granted by God. Jesus is in total control here. He's the sovereign God of the universe. Pilate would have nothing on him had it not been granted by God. Jesus' death was forecast and foreordained before the foundation of the world. Pilate may think that he has Jesus on trial, but actually it's Pilate who's on trial because what he does with Jesus will determine his eternal destiny. And the same is true for you and me. What we do with Jesus will determine our eternal destiny. Then in verses 19 and 22, there's this debate about giving Jesus the title King of the Jews. And remember from last week that many were confused and conflicted about Jesus because they thought that the Messiah would be a political ruler, a political king, a military king who would overthrow the Roman Empire. And when Jesus didn't do that, then they were like, well, then he can't be the Messiah. But we learned last week that the kingdom that Jesus was bringing was not a kingdom of this world ultimately, but a kingdom in our hearts. The reign and rule of God in our hearts. When we submit to God's lordship in our lives and allow Jesus to be king and set up his kingdom within us. And so you have this this conflict about, do we give him the title king of the Jews? And they're saying, no, don't give him that title. He's not really the king like we thought he'd be. And then I love it, Pilate says, hey, what I've written, I've written. King of the Jews. Then in verse 23, Jesus' clothing is divided into four parts, and they cast lots for this. And then in verse 24, this was to fulfill the Scripture. Circle that if you're comfortable writing in your Bible. Fulfill the Scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You might know where that's quoted or where that's from. What passage is that quoting from? It's Psalms 22, verse 18. On your own, today read Psalm 22. I remind you it was written in 1000 B.C. Psalms 22 was written 1,000 years before Christ was born. Death by crucifixion had not even been invented by the Romans. And yet, Psalms 22 describes a crucifixion like you would not believe, and in that it even mentions dividing his clothes and casting lots for them. How amazing that God would forecast things as specific as this in the Old Testament to once again prove that Jesus is his son and the Bible is his word. So the fourth area I want to look at today is Jesus' fulfillment of prophecy. Many of you know my story. I got saved when I was a senior in high school, came to the University of Georgia in 1979, and began to see for the first time in my life I had my faith challenged. 
had professors at UGA saying things like, the Bible's full of contradictions, nobody believes that stuff anymore. And so for the first time in my life, I, I knew what I believed, but I did not know why I believed it. I couldn't defend my faith. I could not have given you intellectual arguments. I couldn't have given you tangible archaeological proofs or historical proofs for the existence of God, the person of Jesus, or the integrity of the Bible. And so it caused me to investigate. Why do I believe what I believe? Do you know why you believe what you believe? It's one thing to say, well, I know that Jesus died for me. I've accepted Christ in my life. I've seen the power of the Holy Spirit change my life. That's awesome. That's the power of a testimony, and that is absolutely essential to a vibrant walk with God. At the same time, it's important that as a believer, you be able to defend your faith because we live in a culture that is very skeptical, and there are attacks on the Christian faith every day. And so one of the things that helped me as I began to study the evidence for the Christian faith was fulfilled prophecy. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus that were fulfilled in Jesus. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. It's interesting that many of them relate to Christmas. Micah 5 2. Oh, Bethlehem Euphrates, you too little to be among the clans of Israel. From you will come forth one whose origins are from long ago, and he will reign forever. Prediction in Micah 5.2 that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7.14, a child will be born, a son will be given, and you will call his name Emmanuel, God with us, written in 700 B.C. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, which our entire candlelight Christmas Eve service is going to be built around this year, for you will call him the Son, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Is that not Jesus? Oh, yes, it is. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And so in this very chapter of God's Word, we have four places where he cites it was written in the Scriptures. You might want to jot these in the margin of your Bible. In verse 24, again, that is uh, from Psalm 22. Verse 28 comes from Psalm 69. Verse 36 comes from Psalm 34. And verse 37 comes from Zechariah 12 and Revelation 1. Recently, I was listening to an interview with John MacArthur by Ben Shapiro, who is an Orthodox Jew. And MacArthur said that he put such confidence in the Old Testament that he's not sure that he would even be a follower of Jesus if it were not for the Old Testament and all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. So as I began to study why I believed what I believed, the person that had the greatest impact on me was Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell, many of you know his story, he sought to disprove Christianity. And he specifically went after the resurrection and the Bible. And in the process of trying to disprove Christianity, he ran headlong into evidence after evidence after evidence after evidence for the Christian faith, and he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And he's now written over 30 best-selling books defending Christianity. Beloved, Hebrews chapter 11 says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. There is substance to our faith. It's not a blind leap in the dark. You don't have to throw your mind out the window to become a follower of Jesus. It is based on historical, intellectual, archaeological evidence that Jesus Christ came to this earth. He lived, he died, and he rose again. And there's evidence after evidence for that happening. And in this book, he has two quotes that I want to share with you. 
He talks about Peter Stoner in his classic book called Science Speaks. He calculated the chance of any man fulfilling just eight of these prophecies, and there's 300. Down to the present time, the chance of that would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Now, we have a hard time putting our mind around 10 to the 17th power. So, in the book by Lee Strobel called The Case for Christ, he quotes this, and then he gives an illustration to help us understand it. He would say the likelihood of that occurring would be like covering the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars, blindfolding someone, dropping them in the middle of the state, and they just happen to pick the one marked silver dollar. That would be 10, one in 10 to the 17th power. Lee Strobel was an investigative crime journalist with the Chicago newspaper, so he knew how to investigate the facts and determine whether something was true or not. His wife became a born-again Christian. He said, that's not what I signed up for when I married her, and so it sent him on a major tailspin. And so in the process of investigating whether or not Christianity was true, he too went on a journey much like Josh McDowell, partially to disprove it. He ran headlong into the evidence and became a follower of Jesus and has written a number of best-selling books himself and speaks all over the world in defense of the Christian faith. Another quote out of Josh McDowell's book is this. He said, one reason the Bible's Old Testament is so important to Christians is that it contains prophecies, over 300 predictions, in fact, that like the threads of a tapestry, establish the messianic credentials of Jesus. And so as I studied that, and as I began to see these prophecies, I literally, I'll never forget, I was was staying in Creswell dorm, freshman at UGA, and I began to see what Josh had written. I began to look at these Old Testament prophecies, and I said, there is no human way this could have been written this much in advance of Jesus and predicted exactly who He would be, what He would do, unless there was a divine author behind this book, which there is. I believe, beloved, with all my heart that God gave the greatest proof of His existence, not only in creation, but in becoming a man in Jesus Christ. He also gave the proof of His existence and care for you by penning a book through human authors, inspiring this book, and putting in it things that would happen, telling things that would happen before they happen and have them happen just like He said they would happen. Who could do that but God alone? This book, is the Word of God. Jesus is the Son of God, and God is doing things in your life today to show you that He is real, and it's best that you wake up and smell the roses because God's doing things in you right now to show you that He's real. Amen? You are not here by accident. You are here by divine appointment. You're listening online by divine appointment. God's doing things in your life to show you that He's real, to show you that He loves you, to show you that He came for you, to show you that your purpose in life is to know Him and love Him and follow Him. The Bible is proof of the existence of God in writing this book. Jesus is proof that God is real and came to earth, and the Holy Spirit is moving in your life right now to show you that He loves you and He has a great plan for you. Old Testament prophecies. I encourage you, if you're here and you're skeptical, you're unconvinced, that's okay. We love the fact that you're here. We welcome people that are at all different levels spiritually. And so be honest, be real. It's okay to say, I have doubts, I have questions, I'm not convinced, I'm I'm unsure. I have confusions about the Bible, or I'm not so sure that Jesus really is who He claimed to be. You know, wisdom begins with a well-asked question. (laughs) Wisdom begins with a well-asked question. 
If you're not willing to be honest and admit that you have doubts and questions, then you'll never arrive at wisdom. But when you're honest and you're truthful and you say, you know what, I need, I need some answers to my questions, then I commend to you some of the books that I put at the bottom of the sermon notes today, especially Lee Strobel and Josh McDowell. Now, the final and most important heading from this chapter, and then we have an amazing testimony for you to hear, is number five, Jesus' complete payment. Verses 28 to 30, we read, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, to fulfill the Scriptures, here's another prophecy fulfilled, said, I thirst. That comes out of Psalm 69, verse 21. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch. By the way, that can be interesting to study out of Psalm 51, the significance of the hyssop branch, and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The Greek word translated, it is finished, is telao in the Greek, and it means to bring to a close, to complete, to pay something in full. This is why many translate this, paid in full. What's paid in full? The redemption price, that which was required to bring the forgiveness of sins, beloved. There's a debt that we owe God due to sin. The only means whereby that debt can be paid is the blood of a perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, which Jesus was. When He breathed His last, He was saying something so spiritually significant It has been paid. The debt has been paid. The wrath of God has been absorbed by me. There's nothing else to be done. The law is fulfilled. Salvation is accomplished. All that was necessary for sin to be forgiven has been done by me. It is accomplished. It is finished. There's nothing more for you and me to do except put our faith and trust in Christ alone for our salvation. He did it all. It was completely paid for. There's nothing more necessary for your sin to be forgiven, for my sin to be forgiven. Jesus paid it all with his precious blood. This too was fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Look at these verses. Again, I remind you, 700 B.C. Surely he took up our infirmities. Remember, he spoke not when he was being flogged because he had no sin or crime to confess. He was dying for your sin. He was dying for my sin. He was absorbing the judgment of God for us. He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God. What do you mean stricken by God? Yes, God put it on him. God put his wrath on Jesus. God sent Jesus, and this was all foreordained by God, smitten by him and afflicted by God for you and me. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment, look at this that brought us peace. What kind of peace? Peace with God. Romans 5 and 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And by His wounds, we are healed. Healed of what? Healed of our sin. Healed of judgment. Healed of condemnation. Healed of anything that would keep us from God. It's all been paid for. It's all been taken care of. We all like sheep have gone astray in our sin. Each of us has turned to his own way in our sin. 
And the Lord has laid on him. Here's the here's part of the Trinity right here. The Lord, Father God, has laid on him, Son of God, the iniquity of us all. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for their transgressors. Paid in full, beloved. Sin atoned for. Justice met. Love expressed. Wrath absorbed. Law fulfilled. Mission accomplished. Salvation provided. Redemption paid for. All by Jesus. Because of his death, we're made alive. Because of his payment, we're set free. Because he paid the price, we're healed, forgiven, reconciled, redeemed. It's so interesting to look closely at the lyrics of so many popular Christmas songs, and I want to point out a few to you today that speak of, his, speak of our sin, that speak of His death and His atonement. Oh, holy night, stars are brightly shining. And then look at what I've highlighted. Long lay the world in sin. That's what He came for. God rest ye merry gentlemen to save us all from Satan's power. Born to die, beloved. Hark the herald angels sing. God and sinners reconciled. Why do we need to be reconciled? Because there's a barrier between us and holy God. It's called sin. And unless that sin is removed, unless the barrier is removed, we're not reconciled. It's just like any relationship. If you're not reconciled with somebody because there's been something that has, that has caused the relationship to go astray, it takes removing that which was the barrier before you can be reconciled to the person. A couple that has, that has a marriage that is in, that is in, is in disarray and they're, they're about to divorce, but then they, they deal with what was causing the separation. There's confession and humility, and they say, we're reconciled. We've dealt with that which separated us. And then that line that I love so much in this great song, born to give them second birth. Say, what's that all about? Oh, yeah. That's Romans 3, or uh, John 3. Nicodemus comes. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, unless you're born again. He's like, wait, wait, I can't go back into my mother's womb. What are you talking about? Ah, this is a spiritual rebirth. You're born the first time through your mother, flesh and blood, but your spirit is dead due to sin. But when you receive Christ, when you repent of your sins, when you put your faith and trust in Christ alone, guess what happens? The Bible says your spirit goes from death to life. Your spirit goes from sinner to saint. Your, 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 your life goes from being separated and being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. That's what it means to be born again. Your spirit is made alive. You get a second birth. You get a fresh start. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Hallelujah be to God. That's what it means to be born again. Have you been born again? Have you received Jesus? Have you gotten that fresh start? It's possible today if you're not saved, you can be born again. What child is this who laid to rest? The King of kings, salvation brings. See how many of these great songs relate to salvation. Born to die. Good Friday explains Christmas. Angels from the realms of glory 
sinners wrung with true repentance, doomed for guilt to endless pains if they don't repent. But if they do, look what happens. Justice now revokes the sentence. Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' shed blood, Jesus' payment, Jesus saying it is finished, revokes the sentence. What kind of sentence is it revoking? It's revoking the sentence of condemnation and death and sending you to hell for your sin. But he interceded. He came in between. He paid the price. So that sentence coming against you can be revoked, can be reversed, can be turned around if you receive him, if you repent. That's the good news because then mercy calls you. Mercy calls out and says, break your chains. You don't have to be chained to sin. You don't have to be chained to self. You don't have to be chained to the enemy. It can be revoked by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Now, another small detail that's very interesting is in verses 33 and 34. It says that they came to Jesus and they chose not to break his legs because they saw that he was already dead. Why would you break the the legs of a person on a cross? Well, as I explained earlier, The only way that you can survive on a cross after being nailed and beaten is to push on your feet, to lift up your arms, to just get a bit of a breath of air. So if they needed to get the criminal off the cross, or if it had been so many hours that they needed to get him off, to speed up the death process, they would break his legs so that he could no longer push on his legs and get a breath of air. They came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead. So rather than break his legs, they did, just to ensure death, take a sword and send it through his heart. And then it says in the Scriptures that out came water and blood. I love the fact that the Scriptures, there's intentionality in everything in God's Word. There's never a phrase or a word that is not for a purpose. And if you study medical phenomena, literally it a person whose heart has burst, a sack of fluid will develop around the heart. So this was indicative of the fact that Jesus' heart had literally burst, broken for you. He literally died, not just from physical whipping and flogging and crucifixion, not just from receiving the wrath of God, but He died also literally of a broken heart because of His compassion and His love. For you and me. Now, in the final section of chapter 19, we have Jesus' body being prepared for burial. And notice in verse 39 that one of the spices brought to put on his body to prepare him for burial was what? Myrrh. Does that remind you of anything that we often talk about at Christmas? Turn to Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, and then we're going to have a testimony. Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, describes the magi or the wise men coming to visit Jesus. And if you remember, they brought him three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Why would you bring a baby, a spice used for burial? I'll tell you why. Because again, even at the manger, the finger of Almighty God was pointing to the cross, born to die, born to accomplish the mission of redemption for you and me. And the greatest proof of the power of the gospel 
is a changed life. So Jerry, if you and Kevin would come up, please. I want you to hear from someone that God has done an amazing work to change his life and transform this brother. From someone who's been through incredible suffering and sorrow and pain and rejection into a man who loves Jesus now. And so, Jerry, tell us, tell us what's going on here. Oh, come over here. Don't run away. <laughs> Stay right here with me. Uh, good morning, church. My name is uh, Pastor Jerry. I'm, I'm honored to serve here um, in, in several capacities, but the one that I'm, I'm most honored to serve in is with Fresh Wind. Fresh Wind is a, is a recovery ministry for men that are struggling with drugs and alcohol, and uh, there's a group of us here every day. Any day, any day you want to come by and join us, you're welcome. Uh, they're here in the daytime from 8.30 in the morning until 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon. Um, and then they go to celebrate recovery a couple of nights a week, and they have some other activities that they do. All the people who help with Fresh Wind, and there's a half a dozen or more teachers that volunteer to teach, um, and there's all kinds of other people that help with it. It's, it's a, a wonderful ministry. It's an honor to be a part of it. One of the things that speaks to me the most is I get to see uh, God reach in and heal these men's heart and, and set them on a path of, uh, of experiencing abundant life. John 10.10 10, 10 talks about, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Not just have life and not just be okay, but have abundant life. So, um, Kevin, this is Kevin Whitley. A friend of mine and somebody who's uh, gone through this ministry, and uh, it, you're going to get a real, it's gonna, this is going to be a neat time. So uh, I want to ask Kevin a few questions and get him to answer for us. Uh, Kevin, uh, tell us a little bit about your life before God healed you. All right. I was growing up uh, in a Southern Baptist church uh, at perfect attendance for 15 years. Dad was a deacon, and uh but at home, he would never, he never prayed with me, he never talked to me about Jesus. He never uh, uh, done what he did, did uh, a man, a, a deacon in a church that I would see at home. He was always mean, and, and he was, uh, I was never good enough. He would all, I was never going to please him. And my mom would tell me at five years old that, Kevin, you ain't going to never amount to be nothing. Uh, so I... I uh, I kept that in the back of my head for years, all the way up until I showed up at Fresh Wind. Uh, and then I got made fun of on the ball field one day. This uh, kid walked up to me and said, call me Chrome Dome Big Ears. So I started putting my hat over my ears and so I could cover my Chrome Dome up. They said I had, and you couldn't see my ears, so you couldn't make fun of me. So that insecurity and then not feeling good enough, uh, I just uh, never felt good enough in school. I, I didn't want to go to school because I didn't want to be around people because I was like, I didn't want to be seen of shame and guilt. Uh, and got married at 19. That, that, uh, that lasted nine months. I uh, came home and I got off work one day and she was laid up at the whole house with my best friend's arm around her and that didn't go too good. Uh, but I had stopped going to church, though, uh, when I got old enough 
to where my dad said, when you get old enough to work and get a job, and you ain't, you won't have to go to church. But as long as you stay in my house, you're going to go to church. So I quit going to church. Did not want to hear nothing about God. I really didn't even believe it was, I just thought it was a good book. Uh, but, but no, I didn't really have no belief that it really worked. What's the next question? The next question, he says, I just want to comment, your ears are not big. These are big ears. <laughs> <laughs> when I was born, my ears, I went, came by the store, my ears came UPS later, you know. Um, so tell us a little bit, and, and there were some other things that happened, too. Oh, you, yeah. you wound up in a little trouble with the law, right? right. Tell us about that. Yeah, I forgot. Uh, how did I forget that? I don't know how you could forget that. But uh, <laughs> yeah. I was a... Uh, I was at, I was, I was partying, and uh, November the seventh of, of two thousand four, I got pulled over, and this police officer walked up to me and uh, my, I fought the police. You ever heard that song? I fought the police, and the law won. <laughs> yeah, they won. I uh, I fought a bunch of police, and uh. I got sentenced to eight years of South Carolina Department of Corrections for that. Uh, when I got there, they sent me to the worst prison in South Carolina for bed space. And uh, I didn't go to the shower for three days. I was, uh, I didn't leave my room for three days. Matter of fact, I was scared to death. Eventually, you got to go take a shower. So the third day I went, and I got raped by two guys. Uh, at that moment, first off, I never thought that that would ever happen to me. First, I didn't ever think I would, I didn't grow up one day and say I want to become a drug addict. But at that moment, I hated God with every fiber of my being. Because if, that, if that's who God is, and he allowed this to happen to me, and they was telling me all this good stuff in church of how good God is. Uh, and the day I got out, uh, I looked up in the sky and told him exactly how much I hated him. And uh, became homeless after that for five years. I've been to 87 recovery houses, uh, but this right here is not a recovery house. It is a ministry. There's a difference between a recovery house and a ministry, uh, and that's what I found at Fresh Winds. Now, the first time he came, I'm going to tell a story in here. Yeah. The first time he came, he was here about two weeks, and I looked up, and he busted out of here. He was gone. <laughs> And that happens sometimes. And, and then you came back a little later, right? Right. And um, with some of the things that we were talking about in class, there, there's four big topics. We talk about a lot of things. To be honest with you, it's more about discipleship and about prayer, getting uh, healing prayer. Uh, we have some ladies who are great, and uh, they work in the house of prayer, and they get with these guys and pray for healing. Mm -hmm. And that can be a real turning point for them. Yeah. Um, 
and I tested him this morning, he got it right. Let's see if he can figure it out again today. So we talk about soul, spirit hurts, right? Right. We talk about ungodly beliefs, right? Right. Demonic influence. Right. What's the fourth one? Generational curses. Oh, he sees good. He got it. How about that? <laughs> um, so one of the things that happened in, in the teaching, right, there was kind of a turning point. We were talking about ungodly beliefs, right, in classroom. And I remember looking at him, and sometimes you look at these guys and you can just see God on them. He, you can see him just going, you can see it happening. So tell us about that a little bit. What was that about? Well, the first time I came here, uh, I said, what? I didn't believe nothing he was talking about, no godly beliefs. Like, I know what I believe. Uh, I know what the Bible says. Uh, generational curses. And I'm like, what is this dude talking about? Because... You don't hear that in a lot of churches being preached, uh, especially like false beliefs. I had never heard it. And then he said, well, you need to go to prayer, to the prayer house. I said, I'm not going up to the prayer house. I know how to pray. I don't need to go up there. Uh, so I said, I, I thought, I, I need a job. I'm a painter. I, I can find a job. It was during the summertime, and I booked out. I was so mad at this dude, but I never said nothing to him. And, Todd couldn't sit beside him in class no more. I had, had enough of that. I couldn't do it no more. <laughs> I booked out. I went and got a job. I got a place to stay. God gave me everything. I was like, words are very powerful. You can speak them right into existence. Uh, and everything I told them that I was going to do, I did it. I went and spoke it right into existence for God to show me that that is not what I need. So, uh, when I got all that, I was still broken. And I was downtown on a parking deck, contemplating suicide in my mind, and it was a good idea. So I ended up going to the mental hospital, but, and I got out. And, but when I had left, I left my bag down here at the duplex, and I was like, I hit my friend up that was still here, and I couldn't believe I said, man, he's still there? That's a miracle in itself. There's something going on over there. So I come to pick my bag up, and uh, the guy asked me, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I have no idea. He said, why don't you sit still and let God be God? So... Uh, Then Jerry comes walking through the door next, and I'm waiting for him because everybody in my life, every single person in my life that when I've done wrong, they always have brought up and told me and put me down for my wrongs every time. Jerry comes to the door, and he looks at me with a smile on my face, and I'm like, oh, Lord, here we go. <laughs> he never said one negative thing to me about why I left what I was doing wrong or nothing. And uh, so he really showed me how there really are godly men, Christian men just living this Bible. And like uh, this church is like, it's got an atmosphere. When you walk in the Holy Spirit, you can tell it's in here. Amen. Uh, Amen. So, Another thing we talk about a lot in Fresh Wind is forgiveness, right? Yes. And how forgiveness is for us. I mean, forgiving someone 
helps us come closer to God, right? And, right? and you had some folks in your life that you needed to forgive and probably some people that needed to forgive you, right? Right. So how did that play out? The two guys uh, in prison, the second time I went to the prayer house, uh, I forgave them. I'm, I forgave them. Uh, my daughter, I got a daughter that's 20 years old. I hadn't seen her since she was, I hadn't seen her in 12 years. And uh, I had got in touch with the guy. It's my brother-in-law's twin brother married her. <laughs> I was like, wow, you couldn't find somebody else besides a family member? <laughs> uh, but anyways, that man, uh, I got in touch with him since I've been here. And I told him, thank you taking care of my daughter and doing what I didn't do and making sure she's got what she had, she's needed. He paid her way to go through nursing school. She's graduated. She's married. So God works despite of me. Uh, I'm still her daddy, though. Can't take that away. That's what Jerry teaches. No matter what, where your kid goes, she's still my daughter. And uh, my mom and dad, uh, that false belief of Kevin, you ain't gonna never amount to be nothing. She really spoke it into existence and came true until I went to the prayer house that I didn't believe uh, worked. And I knew the minute that I walked out of the prayer house that I was healed from that generational curse of I'm not being good. Amen. Yeah. yeah. So, Kevin is one, he's decided to stay a little while and, and help with Fresh Wind. We call them servant leaders, and they'll stay and help the guys, and, and he's a big help um, with the guys. We've got uh, four servant leaders that help us, and, and uh, some of them will stay at the house with the guys at night, and they're always here in the daytime to help lead classes and do different things. So, uh, yeah, I, wish, I, I wish I could take, I mean, I'm going to have to start remembering to take a picture of these guys when they get here. Because if I could take a picture of them when they get here and then take a picture when they leave, you would not think they're the same people. I'm telling you. I mean, they don't even look the same. It's almost like they change physically, uh, that God reaches in there and changes them physically. Um, in, addition to the, in addition to that fact is, and he mentioned it a minute ago, uh, a lot of them believe that, uh, that they'll never, you've got to watch out for never and ever. Those are God words. Just God is never and ever. That's what, it, what we talk about. But that they're never going to be reunited with their family and they're never going to have a chance for healing relationships. And we talk about how that's just not true, that God does that, right? Right. And so you're, you're hoping to, you're not hoping, you're going to stay here with me for a while and put up with me, right? Yes, sir. And help me a little bit? Yes, yeah? sir. And what's that going to look like, you think? Tell me what you think is different about, about Kevin now and Kevin before as far as, as that goes. I can look the world in the eye. I can look you in the eye. I can look this church in the eye. And when I say I do, I'm going to do something today, like, I do it. Uh, I do sound on Friday night for uh, Celebrate Recovery. I have never touched a computer like that in my life. I don't know. <laughs> but if, they say I do a great job at it. Uh, yeah. We pray a lot, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, 
I'm going to read this out of Zephaniah 3.17. I want to read this because it's got a lot. I remember Pastor Holt preaching this like three months when I, when I got here. And then, it, then that Bible verse came up like four times back here in class. And like five, like every day it came up. I would look at Todd. Man, you, wait, they still talking about that. It said, uh, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and a reproach to you. At that time, I will deal with all who opposed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exile. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. I was eat up with shame, man. At that time, I will gather you, and at that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among the people of this earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Uh, I've seen people come in fresh wind since I've been here. I watch people transform right in front of my eyes. Uh, Living Hope Church, thank y'all for allowing fresh winds and us to be here and what y'all do for us because behind the scenes, it's amazing. And I finally found out that my true identity is Jesus Christ. Amen. I love you, brother. You too, man. One final question. You said earlier that there was a time in your life when you hated God. Yes, sir. What do you think of God now? ever been so overwhelmed that you can't put it in words? Mm. When I finally when I finally realized what you was preaching today, what he really done for me on the cross. Mm. Not for here, everybody else. I'm talking about me mm. and what I did. That's a game changer. Until somebody fully understands, because he, they didn't murder him. He gave his life for That's me. Right. Amen. And I love him, and he's, he's my daddy, my father, and my <laughs> best friend. And, and, and Amen. Love you, brother. I love you, too. Oh, father, we thank you. We praise you for changed lives. I think of Revelation 12, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. 
Thank you for Kevin's testimony of your redeeming love and grace and power. We pray you'd seal this in his life, take it even further, reunite him with his daughter, and use him to bring great uh, blessing and healing to many, many others. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you all. Amen. Yeah. Doesn't get much better than that. So you're here today, and where are you at with God? First of all, are you saved? Are you born again? Have you received the gift of salvation that's offered you in Jesus? The Bible says, to as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. You've got to receive Him. Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in. He's knocking. You've got to open. You've got to say, Jesus, come in. Take control of my life. That's all it takes. Repent and receive. You can do that today. Maybe you're here and there's some real hurt and pain in your life, much like Kevin's been through. Jesus wants to begin the process of healing. If you'll be honest, open about it, not pretend, not sweep it under the rug, not put on your Sunday happy face, but say, I'm hurting, I need help. That's the first step. Maybe you've been sinned against and you're holding that bitterness and resentment toward those who've hurt you. Forgive as you've been forgiven. The key to forgiveness of others, realizing how much you've been forgiven by Christ. You can only extend the forgiveness to others that you've received from God. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Father, we pray now that every person here will respond as you would have them. Give grace for there to be true faith, repentance. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are broken, for they shall be mended. Father, have your will and way. Thank you for your awesome word today and the power of the testimony. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Stand with me, please. If our prayer team could be available along the sides and back, if you need prayer today, as we sing a song, you can come to the front, kneel and pray as you sing. Respond as the Lord leads you.